Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Parliament returned this week, hot on the heels of a start the year speech from Keir Starmer, who's billed 2024 as a year of change, and an unveiling of a new slogan from Rishi Sunak, stick to the plan, says the Prime Minister. But the story of the week would not have been in either the government's or Labour's comms grid. A new ITV drama, Mr Bates versus the Post Office, has thrust the Horizon scandal firmly into the spotlight, decades after the first of more than 700 postal workers were convicted after faulty post office software, Horizon, made it wrongly look like money was missing. So how is the government responding? Which politicians are feeling the heat? And what does this all tell us about the way government procurement contracts work and the creaking IT used in some public services? Rishi Sunak is doing his best to stay one step ahead of a story that he's called an appalling miscarriage of justice. But two pieces of government legislation are giving the Prime Minister a headache. We'll take a look at a tricky start to the year for the Prime Minister. And then we'll turn to Labour. Just how prepared is Keir Starmer for a possible overnight transition of power? And how easy is it to prepare for the prospect of government when you're also campaigning to win an election? Joining me today are two IFG programme directors who are refreshed and raring to go after Christmas. And that's Nick Davies. Hi, Hannah. And Kath Haddon. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Adam Bolton, former political editor at Sky News and now a Times radio presenter and political commentator. Hi, Adam. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and let's hope it's Happy New Year. Good. Adam, you've been reporting on British politics for over three decades now. 2024 inevitably feels like a big year because we know that the election is going to happen now. When you look back at elections you've covered in the past, what comparisons would you draw? Well, the comparison everyone is looking at are the comparisons when a change of government seems to be most likely. So we're looking most closely at the comparisons between 1992, when Neil Kinnock's Labour had conducted many of the reforms which uh, built new Labour, seemed to be on course and certainly thought it might be on course to win that election and then didn't. John Major extended the Conservative period by uh, another five years. Then, of course, we come to 1997, when New Labour was dramatically ahead in the opinion polls. As in 92, there had been a series of by-elections, which the Conservative government had lost. And as we know, uh, the result of that was Tony Blair winning by a landslide. So I think if you look at the mechanics between those two elections, it looks more like 1997 than it does like 1992, except... And this is the big difference that Tony Blair was a charismatic figure, was carried to power on a wave of optimism, which is frankly lacking now. And also we're at a period where public confidence in and expectations of what their politicians can deliver are very low. And therefore, you know, if you look back at the recent history, a lot of us are wondering why is Labour so far ahead when its offer compared to the contrast between New Labour and the tired Conservative government in 1997 uh, is uh, relatively paltry. Okay, so let's start with the post office scandal. Now, this one's been known about for some time, but an ITV drama watched by millions has made everyone suddenly sit up and pay attention. Nick, can you summarise what this is all about? Yes. So between 1999 and 2015, the post office prosecuted around 700 sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses based on information from a computer system called Horizon. This software, which is provided by Fujitsu, is used for tasks like counting and stock taking, but due to major bugs in the system, it falsely reported shortfalls, sometimes of many thousands of pounds. In addition to the prosecutions, 
Some of those affected attempted to plug the shortfalls with their own money, and many lost their livelihoods. A public inquiry into all of this began in February 2021, but there are many victims still fighting to have their convictions overturned or to secure full compensation. So where exactly is the government at fault then? Where should it have concerns? So the post office is a publicly owned company to which the government appoints the non-executive directors who oversee it. And those affected by the scandal repeatedly raise concerns about Horizon with a succession of Labour, then Lib Dem and then Conservative ministers. But until recently, relatively little action was taken. And some of those ministers, uh, like Ed Davey, the current Lib Dem leader, have now said that they were lied to by the post office. There are therefore kind of big questions about what central government knew about the problems and when and whether it had the expertise, capacity and indeed the inclination to properly investigate the complaints that were being made by postmasters and mistresses. I think looking ahead, the government's going to be under a lot of pressure to strip Fujitsu of existing contracts and exclude them from future bidding opportunities. But that is easier said than done and could potentially be quite expensive. There's also pressure on Ed Davey, um, somewhat unfairly as much as there are a number of ministers, but bearing in mind that uh, Ed Davey has not cut through with the public as a potential national leader, there are those making quite a cynical electoral argument, which is that uh, to be seen to do the honourable thing might actually be a boost for the Liberal Democrats, although, of course, they would lose their leader. So I think it's a difficult decision for him, particularly since he has been someone who has been very outspoken on probity of officials and has called more than a dozen times for various officials to stand down from their jobs. And Adam, journalists have been writing about this for many years now with Computer Weekly, I think, first having broken the story in 2009, but it didn't seem to really take off then as it has now. Why do you think that is? I think it has taken off because of the television drama over the Christmas period, watched by a lot of people with a lot of well-known uh, television actors in it, uh, headed by uh, Toby Jones. And what that did was to humanise uh, the impact of the scandal to show people things that they could identify, you know, perhaps happening to them and seeing the dreadful human cost. But also, I think, you know, with the public reaction, there is anger and perhaps a certain amount of anger with ourselves for for knowing about this or having no reason not to. I mean, as you say, Computer Weekly, Private Eye. A whole book was written about this. It's not as if the newspapers have not reported on this scandal, but it was kind of, you know, a bit like the tainted blood scandal. Yeah, it's awful, but, you know, it's it's in the news and I'm sure it will work itself out. And so I think that there is, you know, at Christmas time, almost a feeling of people do, um, you know, a bit like Scrooge, look at their sins and their omissions. And, and perhaps all the public have felt, you know, something needs to be done about this. Yeah, it, it just it feels like it just tipped it into onto a new level. I remember... Uh, back in 2020, there was a BBC podcast series that looked at this, uh, the great post office trial or something like that. I remember at that time talking to journalists about, you know, why wasn't this more of a, a huge deal? This is a massive, massive scandal and the impact that it's had on people's lives, livelihoods and in, in some cases uh, suicide. It is partly just that it's just 
somehow captured attention at this particular moment because that drama but I think it is also that for a lot of people they did know about it and it's almost like a collective kind of like why weren't we making more of a big deal about this? I think the success of drama was also you know down to the writer and the producers in as much as it gave an easily understandable hero in the figure of Alan Bates and I have to say a villain in the form of uh, Paula Venels and it's interesting looking at the public reaction to this that there have been petitions for Paula Venels to hand back her CBE as she's now done more than a million signatures to that actually also petition to give Alan Bates a knighthood only attracts 10,000 uh, you know uh, signatures in the 10,000 so I think you know the public does enjoy piling in on a villain to a certain extent whether or not that ultimately reflects the amount of responsibility she should bear. And I think that's probably a, a lot more interesting than a kind of another story of government procurement gone wrong, exactly. which it sort of was before. Adam, Rishi Sunak's announced a plan to grant an unprecedented blanket acquittal for thousands of post office operators. Do you think that makes sense? I think it's a political response and it will probably, as far as public opinion is concerned, insulate the Conservative government or his current Conservative government from criticism. There are clearly important constitutional issues about intervening with the courts and about Parliament overruling the courts. My, my own feeling is that in this case, it is easy to make the case as to why this is appropriate. I mean, first of all, because as we've been talking about, the, the process of trying to put this right has been grinding on so long, ineffectually. Secondly, although quite properly, according to uh, Mr. Bates, as portrayed in the drama, compensation paid so far has largely not gone to the victims um, because of the legal costs and, uh, and the costs of, of backing their case. And, you know, thirdly, Although the focus of the drama was on 550 cases, there are many more people who have been affected by this. And this gives certainly deals with those people at one stroke, although already we're hearing quite a lot of victims of this saying, what about us? This doesn't cover us. Where do we stand? That's really interesting. Kath, do you think there's a risk of legislating too fast or is this an issue that requires the pace at which the government's now moving? I think it is an issue that requires pace. And does also require the sort of blunt instrument that, that Adam's been talking about, because there are so many cases, this has been going on for such a long part of their lives. And if that's the route to find redress and, and also get compensation quicker, then despite the sort of the negative effects of, you know, the risks of people claiming who weren't eligible for it or the complications of, of doing so probably is an area where the ability of central government to be able to take robust action quickly and comprehensively is one. You know, there will still be lots of issues to, to, to work out, including whether the current levels of, of compensation are actually adequate. And also, this is one that crosses borders. This isn't just about England. It's also about Scotland. So there's lots of complications for the Westminster Parliament to, to be able to do it. So I'm also sympathetic that it isn't actually as quick as a lot of people would want it to be and that it will still take time to, to get sorted out now that the government is taking action. Yeah, I think it often seems to people as though legislation is a sort of a quick answer and something that the government can say that it's it's doing. Of course, they'll have to think this one through really carefully. There's quite a lot of people who've got concerns, haven't they, about what it means to the relationship between Parliament and the courts. Nick, do you think there are lessons the government can learn from this about how it approaches big contracts? So one of the 
big consistent problems that our research has found with um, government procurement is poor contract management. So public bodies tend to have fewer people with less experience and seniority than their private sector counterparts, which make, can make it harder to hold those suppliers to account, which seems to have been the case here to a certain extent. And obviously, without proper scrutiny, problems like those we've seen in Horizon can go on for quite some time. PPE. PPE, indeed. I was going to say, I think the other issue that this has highlighted is the risk of supplier lock-in. So particularly for large IT contracts, there are plenty of examples of public bodies becoming dependent on the software and the proprietary software of individual private sector organisations. And that means that even if problems are identified, it's really difficult to then switch away. And that's the case with Horizon, which was meant to end last year, but had to be extended. And similarly with Fujitsu's contract with the National Police Computer, which was extended in 2022, because according to the Home there was literally no other viable option because they were the only people who understood that system. So big questions about how you avoid those types of problems in the future. I think it's also an interest, I mean, it's not at all the first order thing, but it is also an interesting case study in, in ministerial accountability. I mean, you talked about Ed Davey. He has been focused on, yes, partly the, the political um, position he's in now and the fact that he has so many times called for other heads to roll when things have gone wrong, but also the, the questioning of was he the key minister at the key moment when this started to, to become apparent what was going on and action perhaps should have been taken then. But really, it's a succession of ministers, as you say, Labour, the Lib Dem, Conservative Coalition, and then Conservative ministers more recently shows you the sort of churn of ministers of different people responsible for the post office and for this particular issue, but also the different questions that people are asking about them. I think one of Ed Davey, the questions people have asked of him is whether he didn't have meetings with people at the key moment that could have perhaps revealed it. The other question is, you know, should ministers have pushed harder? Should they have known that these problems were existing? Were they lied to and therefore not getting the right information? And did they act swiftly enough in the years since it has become apparent to sort of take charge of this problem? So it's the, the, the age old questions of what are ministers for? And, and ultimately, it shows that the thing that the public most think ministers are for is to carry the can, to, to have accountability for this to the public. And that's why you're getting these sort of various calls for people potentially to resign. But it's spread across so many different ministers that I don't think unless Ed Davey, for political reasons, chooses to, I don't think it will hit a particular minister unless there's some kind of smoking gun that is discovered in the inquiry. I mean, I think it exposes two interfaces which you at the IFG are always right about. One is the public-private one. And of course, we've seen this in the collapse of service companies and, uh, and the contracts that have been handled up. But the other, of course, is the interface between politicians and the officials advising them. And it does appear fairly consistently that ministers were receiving the advice, well, the post office says there isn't a problem, and, and left it there. And it, 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 if you think about the structures of how government works, it's quite difficult, the point at which a minister stamps their feet and says, well, I'm not prepared to accept that, bearing in mind that the post office is publicly owned, that the civil servants are working on behalf of, of, of the public and are giving them assurances. Let's turn to Rishi Sunak's start of the year. It's been a perhaps mixed first week back in Westminster, you might say. 
Adam, he was billing himself as the change candidate. Now he's telling people to stick to the plan. Is that more coherent or is it just a desperate gear shift? Well, as many people have observed, I think it's more credible uh, to say stick to the plan because the earlier presentation at the Conservative Party conference last autumn of saying I am the change candidate and I'm different from the past 30 years of government when you've been part of that government for many years was a very difficult sell. I think the difficulty that the Conservatives now have is whether people like the plan. Uh, I mean, the truth is that the state of the nation, the state of public services, as we've been talked about, uh, is not one which, as far as we can assess public opinion, people are satisfied with. Therefore, sticking to the plan doesn't seem necessarily like an attractive option, particularly when the other slogan which has come up is uh, vote for us or we'll be back to square one. Well, as has been pointed out, there are quite a lot of people now with hindsight who would like to be back in 2010. And therefore, it is, I think, a risky strategy. I mean, it seems to me that if we look at this election year as a whole, the public by and large has stopped listening to the government and has decided it wants an alternative. So if we are going to wait for an election, as Rishi Sunak says is his working assumption, into the autumn, the Conservative strategy is simply based on the hope that something will turn up, either that international events, possibly the rise of, of a Trump in America, will kind of play in their direction, or... Uh, that um, the Labour Party will somehow trip up and make a mistake, which, of course, is why uh, we're seeing such a safety first approach from Sakir Starmer and Rachel Reeves and others. So next return to the, his five pledges and he's insisting that he's on track. Do you think the public will listen to him? Well, stop the boats is a big, big ask. We, we shall see. I think it's far from clear uh, whether if you make the sort of symbolic gesture of stopping the boats being sending to people to Rwanda. Um, I think there's a lot of scepticism whether that A, will happen or B, would actually be a particularly popular policy. So I think that is difficult. The arguments on economic indicators, uh, yes, we know that inflation has been hit. The argument on growth you know, pretty difficult to make, uh, as is the argument on on the national debt. And, and frankly, I don't think the cost of living as people feel it relates to what the national growth figures are, or indeed what the state of the national debt is. People, people are aware of it, but I don't think they give that a priority. Nick, there's one particular pledge that you'll keep a close eye on. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is the uh, pledge to cut waiting lists. And actually, there was um, new data out this week, which is actually good news for Rishi Sunak. So the uh, elective waiting list fell by 95,000, which is the biggest single monthly fall since December 2010. However, the picture's not quite as good as that would suggest. So first, the waiting list is still 400,000 more than when he made the pledge in January last year. And it's 3 million more than it was just before the pandemic hit. So services are performing quite a lot worse. I think the interesting thing for the timing of the election is it doesn't mean that waiting lists will be falling when it comes to the election. So there's quite a lot of seasonal variation in when waiting lists go up and fall. And they do tend to fall in the autumn and winter before rising in the summer. So I think there's a prospect of a few more good months of news stories for Sunak now, while the data from autumn and winter comes out. But then the data from the coming summer – 
which is likely to be much less positive, could well be coming out in the middle of an autumn general election campaign. Well, that's really interesting. And the junior doctors' strikes won't have helped, will they? How is the government going to go about solving this? Not particularly quickly, but it's not a particularly easy job. Um, So the government did unilaterally raise junior doctors' pay in July when it accepted the recommendations of the pay review bodies. And there have been on and off negotiations for the last 10 months or so. But it was always going to be difficult to resolve and harder than other disputes. So the BMA, which is representing junior doctors, is asking for a 35% pay rise to bring pay back in line with 2008-2009 levels. And there's not been a huge amount of evidence that it's willing to negotiate substantially down from that. And although meeting that would actually be pretty cheap in terms of how much public services cost. It would have a big knock-on impact because nurses and ambulance drivers and others who have settled for much less would have a legitimate claim to ask for more and increasing their salaries because there are many more of them would cost a, a huge amount. That said, I do think the government probably could have started the negotiations sooner. It spent a lot of kind of 18 months ago to a year ago saying that it wasn't going to negotiate on pay with any public services and then it has negotiated on pay with all of them. So it probably could have resolved that sooner. And I think the bigger worry the government will have is that consultants who were offered an improved deal just before Christmas are currently being balloted on that offer. And there's a very decent chance that they reject that offer and then rejoin their more junior colleagues back on the picket lines. Although I would say that there has been a clear change of tone from the government with the uh, cabinet reshuffle, the appointment of Victoria Atkins. Uh, She has uh, adopted a more constructive attitude and uh, indeed before Christmas, as far as we can tell, the government was offering another... 3% plus, which would have taken this pay offer into the area of 12%, which is the area where others have settled, including in Scotland, including the offer to the consultants. And I think uh, we're beginning to see a bit more confidence from the government in turning on the junior doctors and in, in saying this is a health service for everyone and whatever you think about their pay claim there have been 110,000 more appointments cancelled as a result of this strike my feeling is that in this immediate problem within the health service i think the government is possibly moving quite close towards having at least a settlement it won't i fully agree sort out uh, the waiting list problem but actually the conservatives have created a bit of a a rod for their own back to a certain extent in as much as in the london tube dispute where the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, has come forward with extra money to settle the dispute with one of the unions. The immediate response from the Conservatives and the Tory press has been, oh, well, that would just mean strikes by other transport unions. So if the government now moves to settle with the junior doctors, it's possible that it could reopen problems with with the consultants or or, or with the nurses, which um, by their own logic is likely to happen. And look, the nurses were... They, they didn't accept the offer because they were very happy. They just didn't qu- quite pass the threshold for continuing with their strike action. So they effectively accepted it by default. But if better paid colleagues are getting substantially better offers, then that unhappiness could explode again into more strike action. 
Okay, right. Kath, Sunak's facing yet another by-election, which is a really unwanted distraction, I think, for, for him and his MPs in the election year. What's what's happened here? Uh, yes, so this is uh, Chris Skidmore, who was a uh, former energy minister who was very closely involved in bringing uh, the net zero legislation, the targets, uh, into law, um, who has resigned not just from the party, but said that he is stepping down with immediate effect as an MP, forcing a by-election, which we think will be on the 15th of February, because of his objection to the plans to bring in legislation for new North Sea oil and gas licences. You know, he came out with a a very strong resignation letter about his disquiet about this. And it is a pretty extreme reaction, not just to say, you know, I'll resign. Obviously, if you're a minister, you can resign as a minister. If you're an MP, you can resign from the party. But he said that he's stepping down as an MP. And I think that's caused quite a bit of anger amongst his own benches, a pushback from the government, obviously, on the issue itself, with the Chancellor saying that he thinks that Skidmore is wrong on this. But also, we've been hearing today a bit of pushback from other MPs who are pretty angry about having another by-election, because this is on top of uh, the Peter Bone by-election after he faced a recall petition after his suspension from the House of Commons. And a recall petition underway in Black as well. So we could have a trio of by-elections, none of which look particularly good for the uh, Conservative incumbency. And interestingly, this raises the question about Rishi Sunak's political tactics, because quite often what happens once seats become vacant and the election is pending, everyone kind of forgets about having a by-election. Uh, and the normal kind of measure is if you're within six months of an election, you wouldn't have a by-election. Now, he's now said the autumn which means that all these seats are becoming vacant. That's more than six months away. So those by-elections are going to have to take place. I see, yeah. And of course, the other piece of legislation which is making its way through the Commons is the Rwanda plan. Adam, how ugly do you think this is going to get? Well, I think it can certainly get ugly, largely within the Conservative Party. Again, I think this is where the opposition parties can sit back and say, well, we wouldn't be doing this in any case. So that's their problem because we know that there are a range of organised Conservative groups of MPs planning on coming forward with amendments which could strengthen this in terms of uh, the clear aim of, of some of them to get Britain out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And again, others around the One Nation group, people like Damien Green and others who frankly think they've probably gone too far already and would be very, very resistant to supporting the government going any further. So this is going to be a dramatised problem for the Conservative Party. I suppose the calculation has to be that however difficult it is for the Conservative Party, being seen to do something is going to play well with the electorate or the core electorate that the Conservatives are trying to keep, particularly the the seats in, in, in the so-called Red Wall, which they won before. Again, I think it's open to question whether this particular issue, although people are concerned about immigration, whether this particular issue strikes that particular sweet spot in political terms. Yeah, I completely agree, Adam. I think for the government, a lot of the point is to be seen to be trying to pass this legislation. If there's some conflict with the Lords and if once it gets onto statute books and conflict with the courts again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for the government's point of view. So I think it's all part of the strategy in some ways. And Nick, I saw some polling this week from Global Council that showed that by a ratio of two to one, voters would prioritise spending on better public services over tax cuts. 
How big a deal do you think public services are going to be at the next election? So I think it's worth saying that spending more money on public services pretty consistently more popular than cutting taxes and has been for several decades. Not always borne out in elections. Though. Indeed, not always borne out in elections. And it's much easier to say that you're in favour of higher tax and higher spend uh, in principle than it is when the taxes are coming out of your pay packet at the end of the month. But, you know, I do think that public services are going to play a big role in the election. I think inevitably cost of living is going to be the single biggest issue. But certainly the NHS in particular uh, waiting lists and the difficulty of getting GP appointments are likely to be big issues. And, you know, criminal justice and education are also often kind of important issues in election campaigns. Let's end by looking at how Labour started this year and what it needs to do. Adam, Labour began by calling for a May election. Did that spook Sunak into responding, do you think? Yes, I think... Uh, well, I think had Sunak not taken the decision to make that statement, it would have become probably the only issue dominating chatter at Westminster. When's the election going to be? And the longer he denied it, the more people would be saying, aha, it's going to be sooner. So I, th I, I don't think Labour can take all the credit for that. But certainly they, by taking a position, put the ball back in his court and, and, and he's now answered it. And, you know, frankly, that buys a certain amount of time for both sides. I mean, my own view is that it's a pity that the Fixed Term Parliament Act was ever revoked uh, because I think this whole business of electoral speculation on when the election is going to be is a major distraction. You know, the argument's always been, well, you know, we've got a parliamentary system and if uh, uh, one government fails, then we have an election and we need to have a system of protection like that. Well, you know, what we've seen is governments changing three different prime ministers, four different prime ministers without an election taking place. So it seems to me that argument is quite weak. And by all means, if you had a fixed term parliament, you could have accommodations of new governments within that time. But I think it would focus uh, the uh, political activity on more long-term ambitions for the country rather than this short-term calculation, which certainly we've seen repeatedly now from the Conservatives. I think political short-termism is at the root cause of a lot of the problems that we see in how the government is working, and certainly in my area in public services. I think you can put quite a lot of the blame for current performance woes down to that. That's really interesting. Kath, as well as campaigning, Labour needs to prepare for government or the possibility of government, of course. Not easy to do at the same time, but of course, we would argue essential. And we've got a new report out published in the first week of January that sets out why. That's right. We've got a new report out preparing for government, which looks at facing the possibility that Labour could form the, the next government, given current polls. What should they be doing now to prepare, looking at how past oppositions have prepared, including Labour in opposition before Labour in 97 and also the Conservatives before 2010, as well as looking at what others do around the world. And it is a real difficulty when we have a majority change of governments, when there isn't a hung parliament, as in 2010, changes of government happen overnight from polling day. So 
all your preparation has to be before and it is really difficult to do whilst you are obviously focused on campaigning. So we set out the kind of team you need in place, what that means for making policy and opposition, how you prioritise and think about sequencing of that, how you think about preparing your people, especially when you have been out of government for 14 years and you have people who have not experienced working in government before who might be ministers and also thinking about the inheritance and how you can understand how government has changed in the period in which you've been out of government. So lots of advice for them and for any other future opposition party about how to prepare. And the report highlights the importance of access talks, which, as we've learned, Rishi Sunak has just authorised. Yeah, so access talks are the chance for the opposition to talk to the civil service and particularly for shadow secretaries of state to talk to the permanent secretaries that run the departments they may end up heading. They're really important because they're an opportunity to warn the civil service of what your plans for government are. They are incredibly important to the civil service being able to prepare. And so if you want to, I'm going to use that awful phrase, hit the ground running and not hit the ground like Liz Truss. If you want to do that, you really need to make sure that your early priorities are planned for that you're giving a sense to the civil service of that. And we've seen in the past in 2010, the Conservatives provided business plans. So effectively setting out in each of the departments what their priorities were. In some cases, very early draft legislation around what they wanted to do for free schools. Similarly, in 97, there were key priority areas, although there, in some cases, they didn't tell the civil service, like on Bank of England independence. The problem is they haven't started yet, and we are looking at now 12 months out at most from a general election. Uh, Oftentimes, these have started by 16 months out. Um, There's still plenty of time, especially if Labour are very focused on what they want to do with those access talks. Nick, talking of policy preparation, does Labour need to spell out what a Labour government would mean for public services or can that wait until later, do you think? So I actually think they've spelled out quite a lot of public services policy suggestions. So just this week, we've had announcements on a child health action plan uh, and earlier in the week on how to tackle school absences. And they've also published relatively chunky policy documents associated with each of their five missions, one of which is on the NHS and one of which is on education. I think the big unanswered question is on spending levels. So they are, in theory, committed to the government's spending plans. But frankly, the numbers penciled in from April 2025 onwards are a fantasy, uh, which have been penciled in just so that the government can say that it's meeting its fiscal rules. And whoever is in power is going to find those pretty undeliverable and is likely going to have to spend more money than is set out in those. Whoever forms the next government, if it is Labour, they're going to have to make that decision pretty quickly. Because if it wasn't an election year, we would be about to kick off a multi-year spending review now to announce in the autumn that will come into place from April next year. And so if it is an autumn election, they're going to have to make some big decisions very quickly about what spending levels are going to be in 25-26. I see, yeah. Adam, how tricky is the Balancing Act facing Starmer this year? How much of what a Labour government would actually do if it won power do you think he really needs to spell out before the election? 
I disagree quite a lot with conventional wisdom on this, which says, oh, yeah, it's very important that Labour does uh, lay out its plans. And as has already been pointed out, the independence of the Bank of England uh, didn't appear uh, until after the election. And indeed, the five pledges only emerged, uh, the, the, the five pledges which everyone has kind of copied or pastiched ever since, only emerged once the, the campaign had been launched. And my feeling is, is that at the moment, if you look at it politically, disenchantment with the way the Conservatives are running the country or the state of the country is such that actually Labour does not need to propose radical alternatives. It, it can quite safely say, look, we are more reliable, we're more trustworthy, we're going to respect the norms, unlike uh, Liz Truss or, or Boris Johnson or, or whatever. And I, that, that is, I think, is almost enough. And I think, frankly, after Boris Johnson, after Tony Blair, there is suspicion of charismatic politicians and promises. So, I mean, I've used this ex expression about the campaign that it could be a battle of the boars, by, by which I mean that actually not much radical change being promised immediately. And that, that could still work in Starmer's favour. I think there is a problem in this election campaign, which is that because of Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party, because of Boris Johnson uh, and Liz Truss, there is now a rhetoric on both sides, which is that the other side is unfit for government. And once that becomes a charge, it then becomes very difficult to observe the norms such as allowing the civil service to talk to the opposition. And so I think to a certain extent, it's in the public interest to try and wind down from that position. Although one does have to say, listening to Prime Minister's questions yesterday, that seems to be quite a fond hope. And that's the end of this week's podcast. Thank you to Kath Haddon, Nick Davies, and especially to Adam Bolton. Great that you could join us. And thank you all for listening to this episode. You can find all our podcasts or The Expert Factor, our new podcast with the IFS and UK and the Changing Europe at Acast, Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So do tell your friends, do subscribe and let us start the year with a poll bounce. Remember to head to our website for all our work, including that report on preparing for government and for exciting news about our Government 2024 conference featuring Wes Streeting, Nick Thomas-Simmons, Sajid Javid, Anita Boating, Claire Ainsley, Stephen Bush, Georgia Gold, Sam Friedman and more. Do sign up now. Until then, have a good weekend everyone. It's good to be back.